Hi, good evening. <laughs> yeah, it's it's 3.30 here, so. <laughs> it's 8.30 a.m. here. Good, good morning. Good morning, Sapphire. I'm good. How are you? Good. We're matching today. Yeah, look at us. <laughs> For people listening on Spotify, we both showed up wearing white t-shirts. That's Classic. right. <laughs> Very. <laughs> At a concert, so we can wear whatever color we want. Exactly. Exactly. So welcome to CWC. I'm so excited to have you on to chat about your latest album, Icons 2. Thank you so much for having me. This was uh, both, it was both a pleasant surprise and a welcomed one. Um, it's nice to have an opportunity to actually chat about projects that you, that you sort of finish and is out in the world already, you know? So thank you. Yeah, happy to have you on. For people who might not be familiar with your work, but are listening to this podcast, would you mind giving them a brief introduction of yourself? Oh, wow, cool. Um, I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> my name is Eric Lamb. Um, I am a flutist. Um, I am from the States. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, but um, for most of my adult life, I've lived in Europe. Um, now, presently, um, living in Vienna with my family, and here I, I sort of freelance and I teach at the Music Academy. I have a, um, a, an awesome group of exciting young graduate and undergraduate students. Um, and I, yeah, I play a lot of contemporary flute music and I improvise and I also play in orchestras around Europe and the world. And I play as a soloist and I just sort of patchwork it all together. So I do a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's awesome but all music related all music related (laughs) i was so excited to see that i was getting to have you on my podcast because i am currently in lincoln nebraska but my goal is to try and go to grad school in europe if possible and i was actually supposed to do a semester abroad in vienna this past year but you know covid yeah yeah (laughs) miss corona Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's wonderful. It's it, what's been really interesting about, I mean, it, it definitely has put a, a damper on a lot of people's travel plans and things like that. But I found that in this last year, I have been more connected to people around the world because through like, you know, these mediums like Zoom and Skype much more than I would normally. So it sort of have, has shifted my focus to, to being connected with people um, quite closely actually around the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this podcast wouldn't have started if it weren't for COVID. It started as this project where I'm like, I'm home, I'm bored, I'm on bed rest because I was sick with mono. And so oh, I had no immune system and there was a pandemic. So I couldn't see anybody. So I'm like, yeah. all right, might as well start a podcast. And now we're Good on season two. Get it. It's crazy. <laughs> No, that's great. And it's, you know, I, I it, it sort of has been really interesting sort of seeing my friends and their real um, deep creative initiatives, you know, like mm-hmm. it's like two types of people, those who sort of sat around and were like really, like really um, un- unproductive and sad. And those who are super productive, like seize the opportunity, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone works a little differently. Yeah. Were you still recording this project when the pandemic hit? Um, no, I had, I'm trying to remember actually. (laughs) Well, no, I recorded it after our first lockdown, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so we had a, we had a lockdown and it was things were relaxed for um, like a year ago, like in the summer, like late summer, and that's when I recorded it. I believe it was kind of a long burn because of because of COVID. Like the planning was 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 sort of started right right before COVID happened, and then COVID happened, and so it sort of put the brakes on everything. And then we sort of just went into the studio and and recorded it right after the first lockdown. Um, but then it was done, you know? <laughs> so it, mm -hmm. you know, like, and that's how these things work often. It's sort of like you put the work out there and then it sort of kind of sits, sits for a while. And it sat for quite a while because of the, because of COVID. Um, much, it, it took a lot longer for the, the end production to, to happen than I normally would like for a project. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, one does what they, what they can, you know. Absolutely. So I guess a good first place to start is what is your icons theory all about? What okay. to you define something as iconic? Well, you know, being a flutist and I have a very traditional um, um, musical academic background, you know, like I, I grew up in Detroit and, um, and to be quite honest, like it wasn't it, like for a young African-American flute players of that, of my generation, it wasn't sort of a thing that a lot of us went into classical music. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, it was quite clear that this is what I was going to do and no one was going to tell me different. And so I went to Oberlin and I had a very traditional academic flute, particularly flute um, um, upbringing, if you will. My, my, I had some of the greatest teachers, very fortunate. And a lot of this music is music that has um, for both projects, actually, icons and icons too, um, are works that have um, accompanied me from that that point until now. And you know, you 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 play um, a certain kind of repertoire, and it, it sort of expands its way outward. You know, for me, it's definitely been the case. And it sort of icons sort of start start in it starts in the center and always goes out into music that is newer to me, um, and therefore like iconic as in it may be a composer who I know, but I don't know this work, you know, mm -hmm. or, a, a, you know, a work like um, the Bach um, A minor solo partita or the CPE Bach A minor um, solo sonata. These are like works that are really central to our repertoire, you know, mm -hmm. and stand as sort of like um, big, um, I don't know, like buildings, like you, you see them from light, light, mm -hmm. light, you know, like what do you call it? Like what, that ships, lighthouses lighthouses you know in our in our repertoire that like we we always come back to when we are looking for um curatorial ideas or um you know or in our teaching so and i felt that it was sort of time for me i'm in like my 40s it was time for me to sort of put out my statement on these works now and of course at my you know all recordings are like snapshots you know mm -hmm. and I don't re-listen to my recordings because I know that I would want to do things differently now. But mm -hmm. you know, one. But you know, it, the basis is is there of um, my my interpretation and how I represent myself through these works. So, and that's the whole idea. And I already have an idea of the next icon, ick icons. Yeah. <laughs> that is. So cool. I was listening to the album and I'm currently in music school. I'm a clarinetist and composer. And some of those were completely new, especially the bass flute piece. Yeah. And then other 
um, ones, especially the Bach. I was like, yep, I've definitely heard that in the practice room being angrily played next to me. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, exactly. You know, and like I said, like the box are things that I was, I was that angry student, you know, 25 years ago it, it, next to you learning for the first time. And, and the, this, um, the bass flute piece you're talking about is called Aria and it's a piece written by a really good friend of mine. And it's, so it's also new to me um, in a way. I've played it several times in the last year, but comparatively, it's still quite new to me. So, yeah. yeah. I was really excited to see that because I know some of my friends who are flute majors, they're always looking for a reason to get out one of the auxiliary flutes instead yeah. of just flute or piccolo all the time. And I was like, I have something to recommend to them. I don't know if they'll be allowed to play it on their recital, but I can at least recommend it. <laughs> well, you know, that's the cool thing about of the work that I do. Like not the majority of like the performance work that I do is in new music ensembles throughout Europe. And mm -hmm. that's a part of the, the, the skill set is to be able to be fluent on all of the flutes and to be you know flexible enough to go back and forth like i'm right now i'm currently in the middle of an opera project here um at the folks Oper in vienna and we're playing a new opera and i'm playing alto flute and piccolo and the normal flute and it's really like you know back and forth mm -hmm. like lightning speed so it's it, it's good to i i think it's really good even already as a student to have experience on these bigger auxiliary or smaller auxiliary instruments so mm -hmm. yeah i can't imagine the workout i for playing auxiliary clarinets it's already such a big change in embouchure and with flute i imagine it's something very also very different i was yeah. going to say similar but the embouchure is already very different between flute and clarinet <laughs> yeah for me the biggest difference is just how like the distance from your hands are away from your mouth. You know what I mean? Like going from the bass flute to the piccolo, you know, <laughs> it's um, oh, yeah. it's a bit of a, a whirlwind as far as like tactical um, feel, but like um, tactile feel, but um, it's worth, it's worth having the experience because if you are good at it, then that's a skill set that becomes invaluable in the, when you are out of school and working, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, can I ask what opera project you're working on, or is that? Oh, it's NBA? not top secret at all. No, no, no. It's, it's <laughs> totally not top secret. So um, I'm substituting as principal flute in the Folks Opera, which is one of the opera houses here in Vienna, and it's uh, it's, it's not very new. It's like I don't know. I think the opera's ten years old. So these days, that's quite old. But it hasn't been. It's, I think it's only been performed once in Germany by composer De of Glanat. It's for small soloist ensemble and um, vocal ensemble um, called Leila and Mei Chun. It's really lovely. Um, it's like a, it's like a um, myth mythical love story. It's really pretty, but very difficult. The music is very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> that just means more practice time. Got to get those 40 hours a day in. Oh my goodness, don't even. I mean, the problem is, is that like when you are working, you know, I, you know, I tell my students and students generally, this is the time to practice because you don't really have that luxury when you're out of school. I mean, COVID was great. It, well, I shouldn't say that, but it was great for practicing because I got a lot of practicing done. But, you know, the rehearsal time takes up your practice time and getting getting there on the train and like 
you know, and all those little things. And you still have to clean your flat and walk your dog and get girl grocery shopping and teach your students. So it's it becomes um, a little the luxury of 40 hours a week. I don't have all the time to mm. practice. Oh, gosh, I. When. I finally got to the point in my adult life where I had to start doing grocery shopping. I was like, why does this take so much time? So much time? My, 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 my suggestion is to make a list. It makes it so much easier. I can go into the grocery store and get everything I need because I know where everything is <laughs> in, in like 15 minutes. <laughs> I was so mad. The Aldi here where I go, they changed the format two weeks ago. Oh. And I was like... <laughs> Why do you got to do that to me? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. I'd be so mad. <laughs> it's like, usually the spices are all right here. Now it's a bunch of tomatoes. No, I can't. I need, well, I'm just very much like that. All of my friends make fun of me. I'm very like, um, uh, routine oriented, you know? Mm -hmm. And if, if like the spices are not where they are, my whole day is messed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I'm, constantly told by other composers that my like workbook and stuff is way too neat like I have everything filed by piece I, I like right. color code it and stuff mm -hmm. and they're like mine's a mess and like <laughs> I can't deal with that but as you said before everyone has their own way of working everyone's different you know mm -hmm. yeah 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 totally mm -hmm. absolutely well like personally for myself when I practice I'll set aside the time and I'll just practice for that amount of time whereas i have some friends who will go into the practice room for 15 minutes leave for a few hours come back for another hour it's yeah. just all about the person how do you like to yeah. practice my practice is very much uh scheduled around my dog's schedule <laughs> to be quite <laughs> honest i mean you know when you have a family when you have animals if you have children like your life mm -hmm. i don't know but like the more things i have in my life the more regimented my practice time becomes you know like if i didn't mm -hmm. have a family if i didn't have you know if i um didn't have like family responsibilities and, and like a dog i would just practice all day you know i would probably <laughs> be that 15 minute person you know 15 minutes here 15 minutes there but it's very very regulated you know and because i do so many different types of things i I learned so many different kinds of musics that um, everything requires a different kind of attention. You know, I don't have the luxury of just being an orchestral player in that, like, I can wing it in the rehearsal if I um, didn't have time, you know, because it's a modern <laughs> symphony that I played a lot, you know, like, I, I don't have that luxury always. So my, my practice is really based upon what I'm doing. You know, I'm, uh, you know, preparing for the opera I was actually practicing quite a bit because it was a lot of going back and forth next week I'm playing uh, uh premiering a flute concerto uh the week before last I premiered another flute concerto and so like when, when I have those sort of like important to me and like new projects they require much more time and th therefore like my my um practicing is has to be like really organized and then I have a class as well and so I have to Sometimes I, you know, I try to get to work a half hour early so that I can, you know, use that time to warm up because I do like to play a lot for my students um, because mm -hmm. a lot of them are at the point where they need that. Like, I don't feel like I need to, but I, I want to, particularly after COVID, because now we are, we're back in person. And I feel that like they, they sort of, the thing that they missed most during that time while we were having our lessons online was having this immediate sonic feedback from my my playing you know 
um, and stylistic things and sound choices and texture of sound. And so now, because I'm playing a lot in my lessons, particularly right now with my students, that I feel like I have to be quite in shape so I don't embarrass myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I do practice a lot for uh, more more than a lot of my my colleagues. But it has a lot to do with sort of the kind of music that I play. And as you spoke about, you do a lot of contemporary performance with new music. As you mentioned, you're premiering a concerto next week. But you also, especially with icons, go back to more class classical, excuse me, repertoire. How do you feel your approach changes um, between those two different things as you practice them, develop your sound for the piece, especially when you have a a live composer, you could go ask a question yeah. to versus just previous recordings and writings. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a very good question. Really well asked. Um, better than anyone has ever asked that question before. <laughs> you. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're very welcome, I thank you. Um, you know, I think, well, first of all, Icon is, as you say, it kind of, it encapsulates my, my performance career in that, yeah, the, the majority of the repertoire on Icons one and two are um, 20th century works, um, because that's the, the realm in which I work the most in. Um, I, mm -hmm. like everyone else, like even, you know, the most radical of composers, we all, um, with the exception of those who are, um, who are self-taught, you know, autodidactic, like the, for the most part, all, all of us have a similar academic theory training, musical history training, so we all come from this, this same genetic musical, Western classical music um, genetic material, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that like, it's, I never have considered myself to be a new music specialist. As a result, um, I consider myself to be a musician who lives in the, in the 21st century and who is fluent in lots of different kinds of languages. And, um, I would, I think I, I wouldn't be a happy person if I didn't spend time with old musics also, older musics as well, you know, and I, I, to be quite honest, I find the least interesting music is in the middle, like the, for me personally, the romantic repertoire, whereas the very new stuff and the older stuff, the, the, the things that sort of live on the periphery of the, the, the 19th, 20th century tradition of music academia, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, all those music I find very interesting because they have the same kind of rigor. They also have the same kind of freedom um, as improvisation in Baroque music. You know, there is a, a, a quality of musical freedom that I really enjoy in both worlds. And I think they, as a result of the, the sheer fact that I do a lot of, of a lot of different kinds of things that like my my playing um reflects that you know what i mean in okay. its openness to different kinds of ideas and also openness to changing paradigms um i have a very interesting story actually someone um fr a friend of mine asked me a few days ago in a way that i kind of took personally but I, it clearly wasn't that way because we we're friends but you know the question was why did you choose to breathe in this spot in the recapitulation of the second movement of Mozart's D major a flute quartet? Mm -hmm. And first of all, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? 
Um, no, you, there is this recording of you and you made this choice. Why did you make this choice? And it, 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 I've been mulling over that conversation quite a bit in the last couple of days. And um, my knee-jerk reaction was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, just because I felt like it in the moment. But it's coming from a place of, from, from a colleague who really works in this middle, right? Where all the mm -hmm. rules are set and they are unchangeable and unmovable, you know? Like, mm -hmm. phrase lengths are this long according to this treatise by this dead white man. And you know what I mean? And these are the traditions set up by all of these um, people who are no longer living. Um, whereas I come from a place where I play so many different kinds of music. I'm like, it's all good. As long as you can convince me um, that it works, it, that's fine for me. You know, if you choose to breathe there, it's not that you choose to breathe there. It's how you choose to present it, you know? And I think that comes from me working on the periphery, this sort of like this more open-mindedness open and looseness in, in performance practice, um, mm -hmm. particularly with like works in the middle. Um, but yeah, that's how I feel about like my choice, the choices of things I, I, I play and when I, when I choose to play them, I, I think it's important to be, to be open-minded. And I always sort of like question people who are like, I don't like this. I'm like, okay, I don't trust <laughs> that, you know? <laughs> because usually the thing that they like doing is lacking something because they, they have chosen to take to, to limit their journey artistically, you know? Absolutely. Uh, I really like that story, especially because um, Dr. John Bailey, he's the flute teacher here at UNL. And I had the great honor of him being my chamber coach mm -hmm. last semester for a flute and clarinet duo I did. Had the flautist and I actually were debating about where do we breathe in like yeah. this two measure spot because I believe the downbeat was right here this is the downbeat of the phrase and yeah. she said no the phrase ends over here and we're supposed to take a breath here little did we know there was a standard place to breathe where people had done it in the past but Dr. Bailey he said something very similar to what you did and he said it depends on how you're phrasing it yeah. and how you do it. Yeah, and also because it's your duo, breathe together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I also feel it's about the, the space in which you're performing. And, you know, because I, I, I didn't listen to that recording because I chose not to because I didn't want to put myself into that, like, headspace of freaking out about absolutely nothing because I am a quite a sensitive person and I, I can do that, so I'm working on that. But I didn't listen to it, but I thought quite quite a lot about when, like the circumstances of the recording, you know, what, where, what, um, who was I playing with? What was the acoustic in the room? And sometimes, you know, the standard um, tradition goes down in the pecking order of priorities when other things become more important, like the mood, the acoustic, you know, if you're in a lot, you know, I find that if I'm in the, if I'm a, in a really large acoustic, I probably, I usually play like a bright, like, uh, uh, what's the English word? The, a really sort of like bright, loud acoustic, you know, like with a lot mm -hmm. of reverb. Um, I tend to play things a little bit slower as to, in contrast to if I'm playing things um, in a drier acoustic. Therefore, that changes the, for, for a wind player, you know, that changes the, 
the concept of the breath itself if you're at depending on what tempo you're playing you know absolutely um, so i you know i i i'm always a little bit sort of like um cautious when people are so caught up on um traditions that have to be quite honest come from normal human beings you know like <laughs> you know and it's something as your professor said it's also something that my professor said michelle debose was my teacher at oberlin and he would say you know if you can convince me of it then I, I, it's all good you know but that means that you have either the technical prowess to deliver it in a way in which it's um convincing or you've thought about it you know and for me the thought process is much more interesting interesting at this point in my career at least than what people spoon feed me you know absolutely uh for me the biggest uh decision i made for a breathing based on circumstances was it was a spring concert two years ago i had a bass clarinet solo at the beginning of a piece and I just had to sneeze. <laughs> and so like, I was like, oh, can I make it through this phrase? But I couldn't. So like two minutes, not two minutes, two beats before the phrase was like officially over. I had to like stop and do like a, like just like kind of get the sneeze out without full on sneezing and then get back to it. Luckily, cause it was a solo, the conductor was just following me. And a nice but, little upbeat, <laughs> extended upbeat, nice. <laughs> afterwards, um, the third clarinetist next to me uh, kind of whispered right before we were uh, turning the page for the next piece. He's like, why did you breathe there? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, you, you pulled it off. You pulled it off. That's brilliant. <laughs> or at least that's what I, I think I pulled it off. I, I also don't <laughs> like listening to recordings of myself after the fact, if yeah. I can avoid it, because yeah. I know it's an important skill when practicing, but after a performance or something, I'm like, I need to just this away. yeah me too i feel that like because even with this album like it for me it feels like it was such a long time ago that i recorded it you know there's because you know you know you record it it goes through the the you listen to it a couple of times while you're going through the editing process and then you know you write the book the text or someone else writes it for you and then you know it sort of goes into the machine and mm -hmm. you know there have been times because i've recorded quite a lot in my career and already and um I mean, there have been times I've listened to the radio and been like, I think that's me. <laughs> you know, like, mm, is that Mozart concerto me? Really? Okay. Sounds nice. You know? <laughs> Particularly when I, because I, I played for uh, several years in New York in the International Contemporary Ensemble. And when I was there, we did a lot of recordings for students um, at universities as, as an ensemble. So we come in and work workshop their works and then either perform it in like a reading session where it was recorded or in concert. And it's happened to me quite recently, um, several times that I've, composers have come across my desk who are interesting to, to me or should be interesting to me or to colleagues of mine or to, you know, um, record labels or whatever. And they, people reach out to me and ask me if I know these composers. And I'm like, usually like, hmm, it's a foggy memory. And then I'll Google it and I'll listen to it. I'm like, oh, that's me. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So kind of a bit of a backtrack to um, your exploration of newer music and older music from 17th and 18th centuries. What are your thoughts on the balance between introducing the standard and new repertoire to students who are undergoing, you know, traditional 
Western music uh, classes in academia or throughout their pedagogy when they're younger. Because I know coming to college, some professors, they're like, yep, we're going to play new music. Mm-hmm. And other professors are like, more Mozart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, t- that's a tough one to balance. I mean, I, because I teach in Europe, there is, um, there's always been a push and push towards orchestral playing. And so I, those of my students who feel that that's what they want to at least try their hand at at the beginning of their academic career and so the beginning of their professional career, it's, it, it's, it's kind of required here that they spend a lot of time with Mozart Flute Concerto and orchestral um, excerpts because that's what they have to play in order to get jobs. And so it, this is the time to do it. Um, I personally think is rubbish and I think that the whole system should be changed, but it won't be changed by me and it won't be changed anytime soon. So this is what the hand that we've been dealt with. Um, but I like to try to, for those students of mine who um, have a bit of trepidation, and it's usually only because they've been told that it's too difficult to play contemporary music, they've heard from somewhere that it's hard. And so they have some sort of fear. Um, so I try to introduce one piece a semester that is in the core um, solo repertoire um, for us, because it is like in, in, in every century, it is a, um, it, it's a, it, there's pieces that are harder and there are pieces are, that are easier, you know? So in, 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 so in, in, for me, for my students, curato- curating their semester, what, what they work on is very much about that, less and less about um, when it lies, but like how it lies. So, you know, things that are, you know, easier in the, in the 20th century repertoire might be a, a really easy way of them to get used to new notations, um, uh, get over their fear, you know, something that has one extended technique, you know, as opposed to throwing the whole phone book at them um, at mm-hmm. once um, and then easing them into it. But then I have other students who, you know, you give them the, the burial sequenza um, and they learn it in a week. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you're really into this. But it's, it's, worth, it's worth trying. I also think that, you know, it's, it's any, uh, too much of anything is not a great thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's like too much salt. You know, salt is not bad for you, but if you eat a whole lot of it, then it's problematic, you know? And so, and sugar is the same way. And so um, too much Baroque music doesn't serve a student in the long term, because they're missing out on so many other things, you know, and too much Mozart. I have friends who went to world acclaimed music conservatories in Europe and did four years and only, and I, this is a true thing. They've only learned the Mozart flute concerto, maybe one sonata just for giggles or because it was on an orchestra audition list. Um, and 15 orchestral excerpts. And then they try to get their masters and then they struggle to put together a program because they never had to before. No, and now I want to pre- prevent my students from running into that problem. Because at the end of the day, w- the likelihood that they will not be principal flute of the Berlin Philharmonic is very, 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 very high. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, but the likelihood that they make their path in music in a way in which they can be fulfilled and happy and um, can make a living uh, is high. And my job is to give them the tools in order to make that happen for them. And if something else happens to them along the way, hallelujah, you know? So I, for me, I, I see my own career trajectory as being a great example of that, as someone who is like, 
it's all good because, you know, it's, it's a musical life that I'm, I want to lead, you know? And so it's in my best interest to um, have a lot of experience in 17th and 18th century music. Why? Because there's a lot of concerti that haven't been performed. Um, there's so much repertoire, and particularly in that time, that hasn't been performed, it hasn't been recorded. And if I record it, A, I learn an incredible amount, and B, I will be the only one who's done it. You know? Yes. You know what I mean? Like, so mm -hmm. why would you, why would I want to, myself, or, it, you know, suggest to anyone to travel the road, you know, most traveled? You know, that's silly. I, my, my, I hope through my recordings and my, my career choices and my teaching, I can show people that there is a role that's perhaps less traveled, but um, at some point it will be more traveled because more people will take that, that path. You know, but that path mm -hmm. is what you make it. It's not what someone else tells you it is. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. Absolutely. I have felt through a lot of my practice as a clarinetist, especially because I started doing chamber music um, when I was 10. I started doing summer right. chamber music programs. A lot of the times, if a student wants to get into playing more contemporary music, they have to say it. And yeah. often, like put it out there. I remember my sophomore year of college, for example, I said, what if I played the Bernstein clarinet sonata? Because no one else in my studio had done it in years, even though it's a pretty standard piece. It's just newer. Yeah. And um, I was so nervous that my teacher was going to say, no, mm. we only play like classical style stuff here, especially your sophomore year. But actually he said, yes, let's do it. Let's go yeah. for it. And, totally. and there's something to be learned in everything, you know? And once you started, you started trend in the class and then other people started, started, started being brave as well. Usually, it, you know, it's easy for a teacher to get caught up in like the, um, the, the day to day stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and then you forget, I know I do. I forget so much repertoire because I'm like doing my own thing professionally. And then my students are doing the things that they think they should be doing. But recently I was like, why aren't they playing the Mio Sonata? Because I happen to go be going through my music because I'm moving and I'm sort of organizing my music. Great opportunity to organize my sheet music. And um, I was like, I forgot about this sonata. It's so beautiful. What an idiot. My students should be playing this, you know? Mm -hmm. It's easy to get caught up in this silo of the day to day, you know? Or it takes a, a brave student like yourself to sort of snap us out of it and be like, yes, that, let's all play it now, you know? <laughs> what piece would you recommend to a flute student who wants to get into playing more contemporary music but has been kind of pigeonholed for a while in the classical standards? Uh, well, I mean, wow, that's a lot. It is so much great repertoire that's being written right now, you know? Um, I, I think it's, it, I always think it's really good to find a composer who uh, writes in a kind of a standard new notation. I guess that sounds a bit of a, like an oxymoron, but these days there is like, a, for woodwind instruments in particular, there's like, also for strings, what am I talking about? For all of us, there's like a codified way in which we write 20 and 21st century extended techniques. And I would say find a composer who has written a five to six minute solo piece. Like for us, it'd be Takamitsu, anything from Takamitsu. Um, and because like, if you are 
um, braver and you like speaking and shouting, there's a piece for you in Takamitsu's music. Yeah. If you like, if you like music that's a little bit more chill and slow and you know rich in sound, there's a piece for you in Takamitsu. But altogether, the notation is you can take your understanding of that notation and then put it into a, a, another work, and you you can see how much you've learned. I mean, that's how I did it. The first contemporary piece that I played on a recital at Oberlin, um, uh, it was Takamitsu Itinerant, which is on the CD actually. Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, <laughs> the Takemitsu that's on Icons 2 was I played on my junior recital and I learned so much about um, notation. And for, and for a lot of people, that's where it lies, the, the fear, just of seeing something new on the page. And it sort of freaks you out a little bit. Um, but once you sort of learn the language, then it's like learning Spanish, then like learning French and Portuguese is so much easier. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like learning German and then if you have to learn Dutch or Danish, it's so much easier because you, you have the building blocks of, of, of a widely spoken language are already there. And then you can just like through the process of, you know, intellectual sort of like deduction, make, make, make a leap into something new, you know? But first learning that, that basic language. And, so for, and for every instrument, there is a composer who has a piece that sort of does that, you know? Absolutely. I'm currently studying orchestration and how to do all of those fun notation things. There you go. Well, there's a book by Karen Levine. I usually have it Ooh. within hand. Oh, it's right here. I'm going to go get it. It's going to take me two seconds. Go for it. Um, There's a book by Karen Levine. I'll show it to you for the, any people who want to see it. Um, it's called um, The Techniques of Flute Playing. And it's in both English and German. And if anyone wants to write anything for flute, you have to have this book on hand. Um, because it does, it, it does several things. One thing it does, it sort of gives examples of extended techniques with small little snippets from pieces from the repertoire. So you can see how they look really. Um, and then with a, a, a very pithy explanation of how they're done. And because I think it's important for composers to have a sense, even if you don't play the flute, to have a sense of um, physically how it's done. So, you know, you can understand like in certain contexts that it won't work, you know, or in certain contexts it will work better. Um, and then she does this great thing where she, she gives um, uh, tables in, in uh, the form of an appendix of microtonal scales. So all the fingerings for microtones. Then she gives you the most invaluable thing, I think, is a very thorough multiphonic fingering system for the flute um, based upon um, the fundamental. So she like goes chromatically through the fun, like the, the, the bass note. And then she shows you what um, dynamics that they're best um, played at. And then if you, you can just copy and you can like take a picture of it and put it in your score, every flutist who plays contemporary music will know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so I say everyone go get this book. <laughs> and she, this is, I am not being paid for this. This is not a paid Hashtag not a sponsor. Hashtag not sponsor. She's wonderful. She's an American flutist and lives in Germany. And 
um, has given us a great, great thing. Yeah. And I will it, have to look at that. I'm getting ready to write a wind quintet piece. Yeah, totally. And there's one for clarinet, there's one for oboe, there's one for bassoon. Not from her, but they, the um, Baron Ryder has like reached out to these new music specialists and composers, and they put together these collections. Yes, we love <laughs> collaboration. Yeah, yeah. And I think that like having these sorts of resources, um, both from the performer and um and composer and performer, composer and composer, performer perspective is super important because then that means that we're all on the same page. What I hate more than anything else is to get like a score and I'm like, where did she get these, these fingerings? Like, this makes no sense to me when all of these resources are, are, are available, you know? Absolutely. I had this fun little chamber piece I played freshman year that was for double bass, violin, clarinet and piano. And there was a bunch of stuff in there that is physically impossible on the clarinet. Like it literally just can't be done Yeah. or at least not in the way they wanted it done. Like they mm -hmm. wanted me to gliss in a register, but make it sound like a violin gliss. And I'm like, I can fake it, but it's, it's not going to come out. How yeah, and this is a conversation it. I have I have with composers all the time. It's sort of like, what is the end goal with all that? You know, like, do you want it to sound good? Do you want people to play it? And if you want people to play it, you can't be sloppy with your work. If I'm that sloppy, I'll never get hired again. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and it's when we have so many resources, and it's not an effort to stifle anyone's creativity, but um, just like in Mozart and Beethoven and um, Brahms' time, there was a codification of how people did things and they all did it in their different way, but it's for the ease of dissemination of information, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I, and as long as it's clear, like I feel I'm all for people writing in a way in which no one has written before, but I have to at least have a, some sort of, A has to be physically um, logical, you know, the geography and the choreography has to work, you know, because the, the flute does a thing physically, you know? There are a lot of things you can do, but there's more things that you cannot do on the flute, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I can do more things than most, than most people can do, you know? And I find it always quite um, tricky that because, you know, I can go in and show someone something that I can do that someone else can't do. And it doesn't mean that, like, one should write it, but one should be aware of the fact that everyone can't do it. But that's what moves music forward, you know? Mm -hmm. And because when, when I was a student, uh, no one could play Brian Fernie House, Cassandra's Dream Song. It's the last thing on, on icons too. No one could play it. No one dared play it. And now students play it all the time. I mean, it's still difficult, but mm -hmm. we've moved because of the work that you know, Karen Levine has done and all these people who, upon whose shoulders I stand, you know, as a flutist and artist, um, all the work, the groundwork that they've laid for us. Now, you know, young people are playing this very difficult music much faster. And so that means that it's my responsibility to even push more, you know? Absolutely. I love seeing just like in the short time from when I was in middle school doing chamber music camps to now as a university student, seeing how different it has become for students to want to do challenging new repertoire. Um, we have a this awesome series at my school called the Flyover New Music Series, where composers and students from the university have new music that premieres every single month. Yeah. And 
I love seeing performers and composers get so excited to like do these new techniques. Of course, there's some students who, you know, they're not really into it, but there's other people who they're like, I get to flutter tongue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I did a really interesting project a few years ago. There's this wonderful piece by Salvatore Sharino, an Italian composer for 100 flute players and four solos. Four wow. flute soloists, yeah. And I did the U.S. premiere at the Guggenheim uh, a long time ago now with all every flute player in New York. It was pretty great. And I was fortunate enough okay. to be one of the soloists and um, had the opportunity to take it to Brazil a few years ago. Um, and I, I, I mentioned this because it was that experience. The, the, the 100 flute players who play in this choir they, they just do a few extended techniques, uh, flutter tongue, air sounds, combinations of those w- with the head joint, without the, w- just with the flute, just with the head joint, with the flute and the head joint, um, key clicks. But it's, modif- it's, um, it's uh, really loud because there's so many of them, you know? So these, mm-hmm. it becomes this like breathing, big breathing organism, but they're just playing these small little micro sounds. Um, but it was interesting. We we attached an educational thing to it. So we we had teachers in Brazil um, bring the students together in small groups and teach the extended techniques. And then we brought them into larger groups where all the soloists were there. And we started doing short run-throughs of chunks of the piece because the piece is like two hours long. It's massive. And um, it, my experience was and my observation was that the the young students who hadn't started studying yet could easily do these extended techniques, mm-hmm. where those who had already started university, I mean, even those who had just entered university, had such a hard time letting go because they are working so hard to create this perfect uh, 19th century stiff uh, expression, which is actually not very expressive. Whereas the young students were just they could tongue round, they could flutter tongue, they could do air sounds, no problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember in high school, we had a piece where um, everyone got to flutter tongue and it was the most fun thing ever. And we <laughs> learned how to do it in like one rehearsal session. But then I got to college and we had a piece that required extended techniques and it took like a week yeah. to get people just to want to snap. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I, you know, that's the other wonderful thing about living on the artistic periphery of, as far as genres and side of classical music is concerned, because it does take a kind of bravery to work as a musician and play contemporary music. Because it's so, the kind of music that is so varied, there's so many languages, there's so many things that are asked of you that are outside of the norm. And it's the same with, with Baroque music, like, you know, to a different, in a different direction, but still it requires so much more freedom and flexibility um, that that is, is kind of lost if one is only living in the center, you know, Absolutely. which isn't the center, it's just the, the, the center of time, but not in the center of meaning, yeah. Branching off of that and some stuff that you said uh, earlier, could you please tell me some more about the research that you've done in the rediscovery of those long lost concertos, sonatas, and other solo works? What put you down that path and what have you discovered? Well, um, the, the, it was sort of um, circumstantial. I, I had a job for a few years at the University of Auckland. 
Um, and it's a research institution. And so if you are on faculty there, like at a, 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 a large American institution, you are required, like everyone else, to do research. And um, I love Baroque music. I always have. And I, it was always, I found it to be a pity that um, I never learned the traverso. So I started learning the traverso, the Baroque flute, when I was living in New Zealand. Um, and then I, as a result, I started, you know, going down that path of looking at manuscripts and things. And um, I love Quant. I always have. And there's this famous writing of Quant's his treatise about music of the time. And so I got it and I started reading it. It was super interesting. And I was teaching a class on improvisation and I was using some of his, his um, writings. And then I sort of stumbled through that upon a, a collection of um, works that he put together. He hadn't written all of them, but he put together like a, like a book of, of for flute players of the time um, with some of the greatest flutists who were also composers. Because in, in that time, there was no, rarely a difference between a flute or, a musician and a, a, compo a instrumentalist and a composer. If you were a composer, you were an instrumentalist and vice versa. And, um, and so there were all these really interesting pieces, including um, uh, the complete caprices. And so, you know, you do what you do what you do when there's in research, when there's not a lot of stuff, you look up, you go to Google. Nah? And then from Google, you go to usually YouTube. And because it's there, that is a valid form of research. And I was like, wow, there's like, there are people sitting up in their living rooms playing this caprice and that caprice, but why not this caprice and that caprice? And I was like, wow, so why don't I just uh, put them all together? I'll make an addition and I'll record them. And so I put sort of like a best of including the caprices from that book of quants that I found um, and made an addition and just recorded it in an album because none of it had been recorded before. Or if it had been recorded, a bit, a bit of it here, a bit of it there, but never as one, one um, volume of work dedicated to his music and the music of his time. And then it sort of went, went further the next year. I thought, why not see if I can find a financial opportunity to record a CD with orchestra? And um, the great thing about the works of this time, the orchestras are very small, so that means that your resources are are easier to come by because you don't have to put together a huge orchestra. And there are specialist ensembles in Europe that do that. They their raison d'être is to do and find these sort of um, lost works. And so I approached an orchestra and a conductor, and they were keen on doing it, and they knew my work from before, and that's how the I, and I found four concerti that hadn't been recorded and there hadn't been a proper edition made of it. So I had to make parts um, because it was just scores. Um, because in Quantis' time, it, that wasn't a thing. You know, he worked for the, he worked for the emperor. And so he, everything that he wrote, he wrote for the emperor and it belonged to the emperor. So the emperor would take it and he would have his copyists make, make three copies of the score and they locked them away because as long as he was living, no one was allowed to play them. And so there are these pristine handwritten scores, but in the style of the time. So, you know, the repeats aren't written out and things like that. Um, so, and there are some mistakes in the harmonies and things like that. So I had to go through and fix all those things. And it was an amazing experience because I learned so much. And then on top of it, I was able to, to work for a week with this orchestra that does that all the time. And so it was, 
not only a, an academic learning experience, but a performance of one as well. And I think the, pro the product that came out sort of reflects that honest, that honest work. You know, it, it's clear that, um, I think it's clear to me at least that I'm not a Baroque specialist, but it's clear that like we're trying to create a product that at least is authentic in its smell. You know, mm -hmm. without without um, without being like an imposter, you know what I mean? It's not trying to be. I'm not trying to be someone I'm not on that recording. But I did like through the process of recording and working with the musicians of the orchestra. I learned an incredible amount, and I can hear that in the in the product. I love that. Did you guys end up recording with Baroque instruments? No, I, well, they do because they, they play on Baroque instruments. Um, but I recorded on a modern flute. We just moved everything up to 440, um, which is possible. Um, and I played on a wooden flute. So I own also a modern wooden flute that I play, play in orchestra, like if I'm playing Beethoven symphonies or Haydn symphonies or Mozart operas. I usually play that instrument just because I, I like the sound. It's a bit softer and more delicate. Um, and it's a really good instrument. And I use that instrument. So, no, I didn't play a Baroque instrument, but that was also a part of the research, how to, to take a modern instrument and what does it take to play? How do you approach the modern instrument in a way that um, meets a Baroque ensemble in the middle, stylistically and sound-wise? I think it's possible. I think that's really cool. I gotta go and listen to that later today. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I haven't listened to it. So tell me what you think. <laughs> Will do. So <laughs> since we're running out of time, there's just one more thing I would love to touch on with you today. What inspired you, an American by birth and your undergraduate study, to build your career in Europe? And do you think an international education is something that musicians should strive for? Well, I'll start with your last question. Yes, I think it is because all information is good. And I think it's important to see how it works outside of the context in which you are living, you grew up in, you know, like see how people live as musicians in Europe. It doesn't mean that it's better or worse. It's just different. And I think it's worth it. I think it's worth to see um, to, to the, the, this close geographic proximity you know, how people do things very different in Germany than they do in Austria, than they do in Switzerland, than they do in France, but it's all in like a, our flight from each other, you know? And I'm very fortunate that I'm able to artistically live in all of those spaces. So it's, it, that, has, um, uh, that has informed how I play everything just because I have the opportunity to make music with people all over Europe. And I came to without getting into like any sort of politics or anything like that. But I came to, to Germany because um, I studied with Michel DeBost and he thought it would be as a African-American man who in his opinion was quite talented. Um, it was, it would it was a good choice for me to come to Europe just to see, just to have a comparison to seeing how I felt, how I felt I was treated as a musician and what spaces I could inhabit. Um, I think he was right. It served me well in that um, I've always been the kind of person that I've never thought that I that my skin color was a, a hindrance. But you know how what I feel about myself is not what other people feel. And if I don't have the power, then that's there. That's my problem to deal with. That's the thing I have to contend with. And there's just more opportunity for me. It was at the time and now because I've been here for a while still. Um, as a musician 
and not even the, the musician of color isn't even a thing, you know? Where I felt that in that time, it's changed a lot, you know? In now in the United States, a few weeks ago, four African-American friends of mine became full professors at American universities and flew. And I thought, excuse me? That, did not, that was not the case when I was, when I was a student. And I graduated from Oberlin in 2000. And so 22 years ago, that was not the case. And um, we've come a long way. Um, and in the meantime, I've made a life here. So, but I think it's really worth it. I think it's very important to learn a second language. Um, just if you're going to play Mozart and if you're going to play Mahler, you should be able to know what all of these things in the score mean. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's a difference between like knowing what it like means and writing it down on top and like knowing what it actually means in context, like what the words really mean, like lebhaft or lebendig or, you know, there's so many words that like in, you, you see in um, Hindemith, for instance, he's very known for writing their German text in his scores. And they mean much more than what the Google Translate says they, they mean. And it's, it's, it, it, it enriches you anyway, you know? Um, and that's what brought me to Europe. I mean, it's a bit crazier of a story. It was very providential. I have family in, in Germany and I was looking for a teacher and it turned out that the person who I was interested in learning from was in the orchestra with my aunt. So it sort of made sense <laughs> that I came here. It sort of, and then I stayed and, you know, Bob's your uncle. 20, 22 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> That's my That's answer. so cool. <laughs> I, one of the things that excites me the most about studying abroad is I am a half Filipino woman. I have never had a Filipino music teacher. Mm. I have had exactly three uh, Filipino music colleagues in mm -hmm. my 21 years on this planet. Um, and I have, even though things are getting better, it's not perfect. I have faced um, discrimination in the workplace, um, but I'm very interested to see how that space changes for better or for worse in different areas as I go on to study yeah. in Europe. Fingers crossed that the borders yeah. open up for me. Yeah, yeah, they will. And you know, it's, it's not always easy. My take on that is, my experience has always been, and this is just my experience, I can't speak for everyone, because other people have had other experiences that I've heard, but you know, my experience has always been that the better, if you play well, they'll let you know, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, they'll also let you know. There's none Absolutely. of this, like, you know, it, it, there's none of this, we, it's all good all the time. No, it's not. It's really about work and there's a lot of competition. And of course, some people, you know, there is racism everywhere, but at least, at least like there's a lot of it going on and there's a space for you to fill, you know? Because my, my thing at the time, and I didn't really see a lot of opportunity, you know? Even, you know, I was in New York for a while and I played in the International Contemporary Ensemble. And I thought, like, when I leave this, because I didn't plan on staying there forever, um, where, where, what next, you know? And then, I, you know, for personal reasons, I moved to, um, to Europe and again, and uh, there were spaces for me to inhabit and to work in, you know, and to move in. And um, it takes work always, but it's there for you to work on. That was, that was my experience and that has been my experience. I love that. So last question for today, 
what advice do you have for young musicians who are listening to this podcast right now who are getting ready to build their careers? The one thing I would say is probably the thing that I wish someone had said to me, you know, that whatever you want to do, do it, do it fully. And if you want to do something else, do something else. You know what I mean? Like do something, do well for a while and see how it feels. Um, be brave enough to, you know, live into that space. And if it's, be also okay if it moves into a different direction. Because, because success is defined by you, not by what you think other people think of you and the work that you're doing, you know? And that's something that I have come, fortunately enough, I came to quite early in my musical um, journey um, that, you know, I measure my success, you know, not, I don't measure my success based upon what other people do. I don't measure my success based upon how people project themselves onto me, you know, um, because that's usually a subliminal way of someone trying to stifle you, you know, particularly if you're really good at what you do, you know, mm-hmm. that's like a, a, like, a, like a systematic, sometimes that even like, you know, if people aren't aware of it, they're trying to stifle you by, by projecting these things on you onto you in your situation and know that you're unique and that everything that you do is important and I, for me that has served me well and th- that's what I want to say to that's what I say to all of my students <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I just need that shake it into them yeah totally and that's fair you know it's not always easy being a young musician is hard because you sit in a practice room and you hear people and everyone sounds incredible behind the door you know, they do, mm-hmm. they do. Everyone sounds great, but you don't know what their struggles are. You just hear what you want to hear in the moment. And so therefore you can't base your work upon what other people are doing around you. You know, particularly if you're putting in the work that like most work, do the work, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Eric. It was so thank awesome you. to talk to you and hear thank about you. Icons too, and everything. Everyone, go listen to the album. It's out on Spotify. You can get the CD on Orlando Records. And thank you to Paladino Media for putting this interview together. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for the work that you do. It's super important. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Have a okay. great rest of your day. Have fun walking your dog. Thank you. I have to go teach now. <laughs> oh, have a good lesson then. Bye. <laughs> Thanks. Ciao. Bye. Take care.